Welcome to the long run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Bonnie Anderson. Bonnie is the CEO of Verisite. It's a genomic diagnostics company in South San Francisco. The company has a line of tests for thyroid cancer, lung cancer, and idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. The common thread here is that it's about gathering maximum medical information from minimally invasive and easily obtained patient samples. Verisite got started back in 2008. Bonnie was brought in by Kleiner Perkins and a couple of other venture firms. She was given a hard deadline of three months to figure out a business strategy around a proto company that had been in the works. The VCs were trying to ride the wave of interest in genomic diagnostics at the time and wanted to know if a business could be built with unique information from gene expression signatures that have predictive value to guide cancer treatment. The scientific answers didn't take long to get. Persuading the medical community and the payer community of the value in the information and getting them to pay for it? That took a lot of time and stick to This is a familiar story for those who follow genomic diagnostics. But without a lot of notice, Verisite has made a lot of progress over the last decade. Revenues were up 34% in the third quarter. Test volume climbed 23%. Now this might sound strange to people outside biotech, but the company is getting precariously close to break even. With three marketed tests gaining adoption from physicians and payers, its market valuation is up near a 52-week high at a respectable $720 million the day of this recording. Bonnie came to entrepreneurship and Verisite after retiring from Beckman Coulter in the mid-2000s. There, she had spent a long career in the commercial side of tools and diagnostic applications. She gained insights there into how technologies enable new kinds of biological and medical questions to be asked and answered. But as a business person, she's shown a lot of perseverance in getting over the many, many obstacles in the way that make it so hard to get fairly paid for new diagnostic tests. I think listeners will appreciate the perseverance that you'll hear in her voice. Now, before we dive in, a word from our sponsor. Today's sponsor is PPD Biotech. As your drug development advances, it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small pharma. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatments to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech, visit www.ppdbiotech.com. And if you enjoy listening to these in-depth interviews, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. You can subscribe to Timmerman Report for $149 a year per person. Over the course of a year, That's quite a bargain if I don't say so myself. Group subscriptions, which include an internal sharing license at your company, are available for a discount. For details, ask me at luke at timmermanreport.com. Now, join me and Bonnie Anderson on The Long Run. 
Bonnie Anderson, welcome. Thanks for joining me on The Long Run. Well, thank you very much, uh, Luke, for having me today. So it's a, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while since we met at J.P. Morgan, uh, because I think uh, Verisite, your company, represents something of an underreported trend, and that is uh, medical diagnostics, slowly but surely, <laughs> beginning to find some product market fit. I noticed some press releases from companies like Invitae, Foundation Medicine, Exact Sciences, Genomic Health, companies that I think of as, you know, they've been around for a long time. Uh, each has their own different t- type of test, trying to deliver different kind of answers. But they're, uh, they're trying to do it, I think, the right way, uh, yielding good information, quality information that can guide medical decisions that maybe will will improve public health or maybe save us some money or deliver some kind of value. And Verisite, I think, belongs in this category too. So it's it's encouraging to see companies in this bucket uh, generating more sales than they had anticipated, uh, you know, getting to be stronger, stable, sustainable businesses, molecular diagnostics. Am I... Am I onto something here, or is this, is this actually happening? I think you are onto something, actually, Luke. Um, you know, when I look back uh, a decade ago when we found a Verisite, uh, the landscape was quite different than it is today. I think back then there was phenomenal uh, enthusiasm about the whole world of precision medicine. And I think many of us uh, and many of the VCs uh, investing in some of the early stage ideas back then all felt that, you know, precision medicine can't happen with diagnostics. So this should be a, a terrific field to invest in. And so a lot of investments were made. Companies uh, began to make progress. Products become uh, started to come to market And then all of a sudden, the realities of the landscape we were playing in uh, revealed themselves. (laughs) There were regulatory hurdles. There were hurdles around uh, the payer landscape. There were hurdles around evidence levels that were needed to drive adoption. Uh, Hurdles around whether, you know, the clinical question that was being addressed even mattered. And um, I, I think it feels really good sitting here today to see that, um, <clears throat> you know, all of that uncertainty kind of settle down. And I would say just recently in the last maybe 12 to 18 months and be able to see these um, tests that are truly informing new clinical care decisions uh, be embraced and changes to the legislative world of, of payers, especially CMS, uh, advance and it feels good with where we're sitting now to see that there really could be an extremely bright future for diagnostics and in genomics. So I agree with you. I'm glad to hear you mention hurdle after hurdle after hurdle because that's part <laughs> of this show is called the long run, right? <laughs> you, you've, had, you've had a long run with Verisite. You've had to clear a lot of those hurdles and we'll get to those. But I think this is really interesting. It's like sort of like a slow evolution that's uh, occurred here that that these molecular diagnostic companies, a s- certain number of them anyway, are are starting to deliver on what we thought they would ten years ago. 
because I don't think the public has quite gotten that memo. Um, you know, they've, mm-hmm. they've heard of consumer genetic companies. Uh, there's lots and lots of them uh, advertising on TV. Uh, investors, you know, they know about like the the old line companies like Quest and LabCorp that are kind of like commodity businesses, cheap, boring, you know, maybe widow and orphan stocks, <laughs> not a lot of growth there. Uh, and then there, of course, was, you know, the, the great external threat from Theranos, right? That, that mm-hmm. came along and captured mm-hmm. a thousand times more attention than any of those real companies that I mentioned. Um, <laughs> it gave, gave the whole industry a black eye. So this has been, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you mentioned all those hard things you've had to uh, get over internally, but then there's all this external stuff going on, too, that creates a lot of noise. Absolutely. So, Bonnie, I, let's rewind here. I like to start, as you know, in this show with a bit on the person. And uh, I'll ask some stuff that's, that's personal and, you know, maybe not even all your employees or investors might know all this stuff. But before we get into some of the, uh, the nitty-gritty of Verisite and how you've, uh, the company has evolved. So, uh, just to get started, I mean, where are you from? Where were you born and raised? I grew up in uh, Pennsylvania, about 60 miles outside of Pittsburgh. Uh, yes, I still remain a Steeler fan, and uh, went to a state school, uh, Indiana University of Pennsylvania, where I got my undergraduate degree in medical technology. What did your um, mom and dad do for a living? Well, my mom uh, was uh, what we called back then a stay-at-home mom. Uh, when my son was about eight years old, he came home from school one day and asked what is a stay-at-home mom? Because he had ever not really learned what that was. Well, that is real work, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know that. <laughs> and uh, my father actually uh, uh, ran his own uh, construction company, uh, was actually, in a way, a true entrepreneur. He never worked for any other boss in his life. After he graduated from high school, he started in the building and construction industry. Huh, huh. So what, um, did you have siblings? I did. I had two. Uh, I'm the middle child, the curse of the middle child. Uh, Two sisters, uh, one three years older than me and one three years younger than me. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. So what kind of identity did you take on in that brood as a kid? I have to say, I think I was the son my father never had. (laughs) (laughs) How so? (laughs) You know, my dad uh, had just an incredible um, work ethic and just really grew up in the generation, you know, post a depression where uh, the belief was you really had to work hard. And if you really did work hard, you would build success, whatever, you know, that was defined uh, as to you individually. And... So he was always fairly demanding of us girls, all of us growing up. Um, We had a a bit of an unstated uh, level of expectations, both in the academic world, of course, in, in, you know, personal behavior rewards as well. Uh, I don't think back in those days I could ever imagine being uh, smacked or anything like that, no switch uh, tree switches in our household, but there was a a tone of um, we knew what was expected and we never wanted to fall short and disappoint. 
I think many from my generation can relate to that kind of uh, upbringing. High standards, education was a yes. value. Oh, yeah. You got to bring home straight A's. That's expected. Yep, exactly. You're making progress there through school. When did science become interesting for you? In high school. Um, I always had a an interest in... Um, the hospital environment. Um, I actually did some volunteer work when I was in middle school and was always attracted to healthcare in general. And as I, you know, entered my uh, latter years of high school and was considering, uh, you know, medical school or some other healthcare profession. Um, being first generation to go to school, uh, both, all three of us girls uh, were, you know, college was never a question. Um, where we would go to college was actually not a question either because we grew up in Indiana, Pennsylvania, and there was a college called Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Not to be confused with Indiana <laughs> University in Bloomington. That's right, for sure. <laughs> And uh, so it was, you know, elementary school, high school, and IUP. Um, But I think, you know, it really served me well. But through all of that, I made the decision to choose one of the allied sciences and uh, did my first two years at college in a program where I could have gone to either medical school in a pre-med program that set me up for medical technology or medical school. By the time I got to that junior year, I had decided um, a couple more years of school would be right for me and not uh, looking out for many, many years. And so I went on and got my medical technology internship and uh, wrapped that up and began to build a, build a career in laboratory clinical medicine. Wait, so you decided uh, you didn't want to be a doctor. Why was that? That's right. I think, um, uh, quite frankly, I just uh, didn't want to face the years of school that I thought it would be. And it wasn't, uh, I guess, uh, you know, at a point where I was ready to make that long-term commitment. And the clinical lab field gave me a nice mix of science and clinical care if I worked in a hospital environment. And after doing a a summer internship uh, at a hospital, I decided that looked right for me. So you kind of thought maybe it's time to get a job, start making some money, get my own apartment or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I had begun making money when I was 12 years old as a babysitter, and I don't think there was one year. In fact, I recently got a statement from Social Security telling me that, that I was have been making money since I was... 13 years old. And so it's back, I guess, to those um, priorities and instilled, uh, you need to be self-sufficient and uh, <laughs> go learn how to make a living, maybe, that influenced me to take the job route, the quicker job route, rather than long-term medical. Was there something about this internship that captivated your spirit then, or did, did it come later in business? Yeah, actually, I, what I really liked about the clinical laboratory work was the, the minimal exposure to patients, enough exposure and enough 
access to think about clinical diseases and, you know, the role that laboratory testing could play in that. Um, exposure to a lot of different equipment and technology and science, which I actually loved. And back in those days, this industry was actually going through a revolution back in the 80s, 70s and 80s as well. And I was just really attracted to the, um, the expansion, the way science and technology was advancing the field of clinical diagnostics. Little did I know that my second rebirth in this area <laughs> would come back to a, an even bigger revolution of genomics. <laughs> now, this internship, this work, was this, uh, you're in healthcare um, facilities. Was this all around IUP north of Pittsburgh, or did you make your way into... That, that bigger medical technology hub there of Pittsburgh? Yeah, I was um, actually the larger hub that I ended up at after uh, doing my uh, internship at a teaching hospital in Altoona, Pennsylvania, and then landed in Johnstown, Pennsylvania at one of the larger, uh, larger rural teaching hospitals. In fact, um, Johnstown had a really interesting history because it was sort of the largest medical care facilities between Hershey and Pittsburgh. It had a huge pool of rural patients, and it also had a huge element of it as a teaching institution. We were one of the only training centers for three classes of laboratory scientists back then, and uh, and we also had uh, internships from many of the medical schools uh, between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. It, it, it pulled from a, you know, I would say lower uh, middle income, lower to middle income rural America, which gave us just a massive reach into uh, diseases and uh, cancers, uh, and and it was really quite quite an interesting place to spend my early years. It sounds like quite a learning opportunity, and one that not everybody gets in this business. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so how did you end up? I know you spent a long portion of your career at Coulter, and then which became Beckman Coulter. When did that occur? How did that happen? Yeah, so in the mid-80s, um, as I was saying earlier, the, the traditional diagnostics uh, companies were really going through a massive transformation because in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, laboratory testing began to grow. You know, basic chemistry, um, you know, from the Coulter days, uh, the fundamental CBC, being able to use a particle sizing technology to actually automate doing a blood count. And uh, through the chemistry and the uh, world of the Beckman side of Beckman Coulter, you know, f- automating fundamental chemistries that prior to the mid 80s were being done one at a time. And doctors had to know what tests do I need to do and we can't order them all. Well, in the 80s, you know, that became to dramatically transform because automation and microfluidics and information technology came to bear to allow companies to build random access analyzers that meant 
doctors no longer needed to think about individual test results they needed to measure to, you know, guide their their clinical workup of a patient. Uh, they could actually order them now in 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 mass. And so, you know, back in those days, companies like Beckman and Technicon Interest Instruments and DuPont were starting to move from single assay systems uh, that were all manual to these large-scale, very complicated pieces of equipment that were run by computers and allowed you to put a sample of a patient's blood onto an analyzer and run 10, 20 assays all at a time and and then report those results out. And so... Um, I've often said that if you were a medical technologist, a trained technician that had a degree and, and lots of experience on the science and the technology, and, that, and you also had a personality, these companies were recruiting you to come out of the laboratory side of this and join the companies to help them build equipment that would meet your needs as a clinical scientist and be part of uh, developing the requirements and the user interfaces on how these instruments would work. And so, um, you know, in the mid-'80s, I found myself tapped uh, by a few different companies uh, to consider coming on to the industry side. And uh, I did make the, the decision to join a small early-stage company that was based out of Switzerland with a relationship with another company that was based out of Germany in the exciting area of hemostasis when we were first learning that not all hemostasis problems were bleeding disorders, but there was this thing called thrombosis. And, uh, and that world was just uh, unfolding. And so I joined that company and for about three years, and it was sold actually to a large holding company, TCAN Holding. I'm sure you've heard of that company. <laughs> I'm glad you're sparing and, me some of the names. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then at that point in time, um, I was uh, based in Florida and decided with all of my experience uh, through the years that I skipped over where I was very immersed into hematology and uh, all the blood cancers and, and bone marrow analysis and all that world, I made the decision to join Coulter Corporation. And uh, that was in, in the late 80s, uh, 1989, actually. And that would have been um, a big decision. What were some of the, the trade-offs that you weighed when making that move to industry? Well, I think that it... Uh, I got exposed to the industry side as a clinical lab uh, supervisor because I often, in fact, I had the opportunity several times to go to the training centers at Beckman, at Coulter, at Technicon uh, to train on the new, these new waves of instrumentation that they were bringing out to advance the clinical science and technology in, in hospital laboratories. And through the exposure of spending, you know, sometimes two weeks at these intense training, I got quite interested in how the assay technology worked, how complicated these instruments were, 
and how I just found it really exciting to be involved in learning deeply how each of these assays were built and how important it was to make sure before you were reporting patient results that every part of the assay was working correct. Now, this would have been so, mid, mid-80s, so I'm thinking yes, mo- right. early wave of monoclonal antibodies, which yeah. uh, people, you know, now we think of them almost strictly as therapeutics. But back then, <laughs> that was one of the early applications that you could make antibodies that would, would bind very specifically with uh, some kind of thing that you were looking for. And that 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 underlying technology went into a lot of these these diagnostics first. Absolutely. And uh, it's funny how that came full circle for me. When I joined Coulter Corporation, I joined in the immunology and flow cytometry business. Um, It was at the very early stages of emerging as a technology. And uh, it was really during those first few years that the advancements and investments into HIV AIDS began to happen at the level of investment at NIH and other places. And I believe those investments into clinical disease understanding and understanding the therapies and how they were working and not working and how could we, in fact, I would say it was one of the early precision medicine uh, involvement that I've had in my career because we, we learned that by taking a monoclonal antibody and detecting and counting the number of CD4 helper cells that a patient had in their bloodstream, that we could help stratify the patients that should be treated earlier or not treated earlier with the early HIV therapeutics. And uh, you know how far we've come in that world over the last two decades. So it was an exciting time to be involved in emerging technology. But hearing you describe and, this this, uh, this environment, it, it does remind me of everything being old is new again. <laughs> how, oh, how, how, no. these, how these tests have moved from one-off tests to, you know, more broad, um, ask, exactly. asking broader sets of questions. I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. exciting, and that's where we're at now in, in, with genomics. Uh, exactly. Okay, so you're 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 starting at Coulter. What was your mandate? What was your job there? Um, my first job was involved in uh, tech, pay, customer technical support in flow cytometry, teaching them how to um, develop and execute uh, performing assays in their laboratories. Some were clinical research and research laboratories. But we were uh, quickly trying to move flow cytometry as a tool into the clinical laboratory. And, uh, you know, as you know, today, this is a very common part. Immunology testing is a common part of any oncology laboratory in the nation today. I mean, we would no longer think about going back and and, uh, doing bone marrow slide staining to classify leukemias and lymphomas and other blood cancers, flow cytometry as a core technology. Yeah. But it didn't happen overnight. It, it took literally, you know, a decade or more to bring these assays into the mainstream. Well, so it's I feel like, like I'm repeating that today. <laughs> it's like all technologies. There's an adoption curve. You start with the early adopters. It becomes mainstream. Then it kind of Competitors move in, it becomes commoditized, people start com- competing on price, and um, <laughs> people move on to other more exciting things. It becomes standardized. Yes. Okay, so Beckman Coulter, you spent a lot of years there. 
Um, how did your career progress? What kinds of new challenges did you take on there? I have to say for, you know, an 18-year career in a what was at the time considered, you know, one of the larger diagnostic companies, I had a, a remarkable opportunity to be involved in many aspects of the business. Uh, early on, as I already talked about, I sort of joined and led the development of the first uh, clinical flow cytometer, uh, bringing that to market. And uh, then in the early to mid-90s, the company was looking to create um, three pillars of, of business, one being, you know, their kind of high-volume clinical uh, hematology analyzers that were, you know, market leaders in U.S., Japan, and Europe, all the developed worlds. Uh, one in the flow cytometry area, continuing continuing to advance that technology. And then thirdly, they wanted to build a pillar around the emerging markets where they had not yet built a strong uh, entry point. At the time, I mean, I'm really aging myself here, but at the time, this goes back to markets like China and India, uh, Latin America, uh, so many of the Middle Eastern markets that were uh, considered emerging at the time, even though today these are core uh, growth segments of, of healthcare. And as the company restructured around those three pillars, um, I had the opportunity to lead from a marketing and, and business perspective the pillar on emerging markets. And as I look back over my career, while it would have been uh, very easy to continue with the flow cytometry business, since that's what I joined with, um, I think it was a, a really pivotal moment in my career to choose something that didn't exist, that needed more definition, and that we needed to go find out what the needs were. Yeah, and you don't and, necessarily know all the culture and all the language, and you got to learn to get by, right? That was exactly right. And so as I took on that challenge of figuring out what sort of products did we need to develop for the emerging markets, I traveled the world, uh, took many engineers with me and, and other folks that needed to be involved and understand at a local level what that looked like. I learned a ton. Um, uh, just built relationships all over the world with local teams that we had in place. And it was a phenomenal learning opportunity for me. If you enjoy listening to these interviews with biotech newsmakers, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. You can subscribe for $149 a year per person. Discounts are available for companies and universities with multiple readers. Write to Luke at TimmermanReport.com. And today's sponsor is PPD Biotech. As your drug development advances, it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small pharma. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatments to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech, visit www.ppdbiotech.com.
Okay, so it looks like you left there around, say, 2006. Is that right? That's right, March 20th of 2006. Oh. That was the year that my age plus my years of service allowed me to retire. Oh, okay. So you got a little pension out of these guys? <laughs> or are going to kick in at some point? dates that we remember forever. <laughs> okay, so March 20th of 2006, and you retire. And then, then what? Oh, you're still yeah, you're too like, young to actually retire, obviously. <laughs> I was yes, you recognize that. I think my husband thought that we were gonna uh, move on to the newly bought sailboat that that we bought and and sail off into the sunset ever happily ever married. And uh, you're right, I knew I was a little too young to retire. Um, one of the things that I had done when I was at Coulter that uh, was really on my mind at this point in, in my career was uh, my decision in the mid-90s when I was faced with the decision of going on and getting my MBA at University of Miami after being accepted into the program or taking an internal program which was called uh, Coulter's Global Field Management Development Program uh, I had to make a decision because I couldn't do both. And I chose the latter, uh, which sounds, you know, like a pretty simple decision with the exception that when you do an internal program like that, even though it's much more business immersion, you're dealing with real life business decisions, you're learning from the best in the company all over the globe, which you can never get from an MBA program. I would not have those MBA initials after my name. And uh, I pondered that decision for a while, but after making it, of course, I've, I've never looked back. But during that program and what I did following that program, I had the opportunity to do a number of startup businesses in the company. Okay, so this would have been the ni- 1990s. You're, yeah, you're late st- 90s and early 2000s. In fact, in 2000, I moved to San Diego, California, and I led the first entrepreneurial startup at Beckman Coulter, the first one they ever did. And I just can't believe I'm saying this, but it was in the field of measuring uh, immune response, antigen-specific T cells and measuring innate immune response, uh, a field that, as you know, today is exploding. Yeah. The technology came out of Mark Davis's lab at Stanford. Yes. And it was a thrilling several years of building uh, early technology products, building partnerships with 15, 20 different pharma companies, and then realizing that in a company of the size and nature of Beckman Coulter, the risk profile wasn't there to really invest what was needed in that startup technology business. Well, and not a lot of people in the external world believed in all this just yet. It, it was been, early. It was early. Yeah. But but let's come back to this this question of the inter. Let's call it the internal MBA versus the external one. Yes. You know, I suppose you can learn from some really savvy people about real life cases internally. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily have the brand cachet to the external world. Like it's not going to help you, you know, get that big CEO's job. I mean, were you, were you, but it sounds like maybe the the beginnings of of bigger ambition were being kindled here. Yeah, exactly. I, uh, I, I think that was the, that was a mental debate I had with myself. Do I, 
you know, get the program under my belt that gives me the visible initials? Or do I take a two and a half year global immersion into real business issues, helping to transform certain aspects of the global operations, get immersed in global relationships and global working teams, global languages and cultures. Um, and, you know, that's the decision I, was, I made to go the route of this internal program. And I think the learnings that came out of that were profound, uh, to be honest with you, compared to what I would have been exposed to in a you know college-based MBA program. But it sounds like I mean you were you were a company woman. You're you're a lifer. You made it all the way to retirement. <laughs> <laughs> I did. <laughs> uh, okay, but coming back to what you said earlier, you're too young to actually retire. Uh, but you've got all this these different experiences now. Like, was the phone ringing? Were you starting to mingle with venture capitalists, or h- how did you like? become an entrepreneur. Yeah, it was. So, um, yeah, while living on my sailboat, I I got a lot of phone calls. And some of those were from other uh, large companies in the same industry, you know, wanting to interview me for, you know, positions, you know, president levels, positions, etc. And I would feel a little bit compelled to go have those interviews and conversations, but I would come back saying if I wanted to continue doing that, I would have stayed where I was because I had an awesome career and and I loved a company. But what I realized is my appetite had been whetted to getting into some, some startup, another emerging business like we had done with the immunology technology that, as you say, was so far behind, so far before its time, we couldn't at that point really build a business out of it. And uh, so I wanted to get involved in a startup. And the word sort of got out and I got a call to um, come meet up with Kleiner Perkins and interview with them for a potential CEO position for one of the companies they had founded. And as part of that interview, the company that they had founded, which really isn't relevant, was in an area of business that didn't, uh, wasn't really a great fit for me, wasn't something I was truly interested in. But during the conversations, uh, they got very excited about the level of work I had done in starting businesses, building business plans inside the big company and said, gee, we could really use some help with that. And so um, I I met with the three firms, Kleiner Perkins, TPG, and Versant Ventures. I'm sure names very familiar to you. Oh, yeah. And it was during the time when they were looking to start many different companies in genomic diagnostics. And uh, they had started this incubator and asked if I would be willing to do some consulting with them, that they had had this idea generation going on for a year and a half, but they needed to fund a company. And I remember Brooke Byer saying to me, um, we need to fund a company in the next three months or we're going to shut the whole thing down. So it was really great. I had my timeline. I had the clear charter of what we had to do. And I had a, a team of, uh, you know, part-time people, some Stanford medical students and business students, all working on this incubator that had generated a lot of ideas. So, so you're I coming excitedly in took that on. Kleiner Perkins offices there, um, Sand Hill Road? Yep, uh, Kleiner and, and Versant Ventures on Sand Hill Road. 
And, uh, you know, together with them at the table and, and me and the other folks that were involved in, in the incubator, uh, we began to dig into mapping clinical pathways of care across a lot of cancers. We looked at some other diseases as well, but we started in cancer. And our goal was to figure out where is the inefficiency in the diagnosis of disease and is there an obvious place where they could fund another genomic diagnostic company that would have broad room to grow. Did this lead right away to thyroid cancer, which became the the founding raison d'etre for what we is now Verisite? It did. In fact, it led to a business plan that mapped out thyroid cancer, lung cancer. We looked at breast cancer, prostate cancer. Um, I think endometrial was part of that. And we had built a whole um, sort of business plan around what the economics and patient benefit would be of putting genomic tests into today's clinical pathway where today's method created great uncertainty that would lead on to, to a surgical procedure, of course, to get a pathology result, because as we sit here today, pathology is the gold standard of diagnosis of disease. Um, and what we realized as we mapped these various different clinical pathways of care was that once we got to the pathology diagnosis we had a pretty easy time telling the cancers from the non-cancers, the disease from the non-disease. But in the process of that workup, a lot of patients that didn't have cancer or disease would undergo the surgery to get a diagnosis that resulted in them being told after the fact, the good news is you don't have cancer. So it's an invasive diagnosis. A lot of people don't really, that's not your first choice. (laughs) It's expensive. It's painful. It causes anxiety. And then actually it can also not always be accurate. It can lead to overtreatment too. That that was part of the thyroid cancer pathway too, right? Absolutely. And I think the reason we chose thyroid as a starting point, it was really multifold. Um, First of all, we were talking about building tests that essentially would need to be trusted as much as a pathology diagnosis is trusted today, our tests would need to have such high performance uh, to be to have utility that physicians and patients would choose to trust those results and not go on for the surgical confirmation when our results said that the patient uh, wouldn't benefit from that, that they that they were benign. And, you know, at the time, we wanted to, we were looking at cancers like lung cancer and breast cancers, which are, you know, a lot of people die from these cancers. They're very aggressive cancers. And the inefficiency was so huge in thyroid cancer, we made the decision we should begin there because we need to play this thesis out that we can actually build genomic tests that can replace the need to go to surgery to get a diagnosis. And we're better doing that in a cancer that's slower growing like thyroid cancer. Very, very fundamentals. Like where you start, you start with the sample. And in this case, it was a fine needle aspiration, right? That's Uh, right. Where you you insert this tiny needle into the thyroid, extract a little bit of sample. uh, And so... Practically, I mean, you you could do some experiments and see, can can we get the kind of gene expression array 
that we need to, to give us something meaningful from this tiny sample, right? Absolutely. And the biology, as it turns out, was actually, is actually quite uh, complicated biology in these small, tiny samples. We get, you know, barely 15 nanograms of genomic material from a fine needle aspiration biopsy. So we were looking to do a lot of heavy lifting with that sample. And there are four, five, six types of cancers and fortified types of, of benign conditions that look very similar under a microscope under a you know with a small cellular sample and so our challenge was how do we take all of this complicated biology and build a classifier that in advance of the patient going to surgery can segregate the benign nodules from those that are malignant and that was the clinical question that was the founding question of thesis for Verisite today. How many genes were you looking at in the beginning? We're looking at all of them to build a classifier. That was a fundamental, I think, difference at that point in time. Verisite always was a believer that to build the tests given the cost that had come down in the technology by 2008, 9, and 10 when we were doing this early work, there was no reason for us to be faced with the approach that others may have financially had to take, which may have been, let's go to the literature and see if we can glean from literature this set of markers to start with. We were able to take the whole genome arrays and collect the entire transcriptome from a gene expression standpoint. And then because the technology was advancing uh, in the informatics side, we decided why not start with machine learning? Let's take the whole genome, the whole gene expression array data that we can collect on every one of these patient samples. Let's get the clinical truth label from surgery because all these patients are going to surgery today and we can build a pretty good truth label, diagnostic truth on whether they're benign or cancerous from that data. And then let's use machine learning to take the features from the genome that allows us to get the greatest, the highest performing separation of the benign patients from the non-benign patients in advance of surgery. So you're, I mean, this and is if, really, I mean, you're doing discovery on your own. You're oh, com, com, coming up with your own proprietary signature. Based totally. on the, these tools, uh, well, who were you using? Was it Affymetrix or Illumina or someone else? We were using Affymetrix uh, whole genome arrays at the time. Uh, yeah, Illumina did harass us about that a little bit, but ultimately <laughs> it all ended up well because we're in Illumina house today on whole transcriptome sequencing. Okay, so you, you gather this gene expression profile and you can now sort patients into benign and malignant categories. But then, you know, you got to prove it <laughs> to the physicians That's right. and to the payers. How do you go about that? Well, um, you have to start by laying out, you know, what will the pathway of, of proof be before we ever even begin the discovery work. And uh, the one thing that we knew, I think, you know, with the years, of course, that I had spent in this industry and the years that uh, some of the other early people that joined the company had, 
we knew that we had to build a biorepository of thyroid biology that represented the broad array of all the biology and all those patients that are showing up to be diagnosed at the physician's office. So that meant um, building a prospective cohort that would enroll patients at the time that they were being seen with a nodule in advance of any fine needle aspiration biopsy even being done yet, and then have our sample collected on all the patients that would be worked up and then follow them all through to the final diagnosis based on their surgical pathology following the thyroidectomy that would happen in all of these cases. What kind of projected time frame would that take? Well, we originally, uh, this is an interesting point, because when we founded the company, there was an idea that we might be able to tap some fine needle aspiration sample banks that some of our early collaborators had built. Uh, UCSF, uh, Johns Hopkins, they were both very big and active uh, investigators in what turned out to be our 49-site clinical validation study. But um, they also had these uh, repositories of frozen FNAs that they thought we could shorten some of the timeline around. But unfortunately, when we went into those uh, aged uh, banks of FNAs that had been frozen, uh, there was very little content and very little information we could pull out of them. They had not really been properly collected and preserved because back when they held those samples, there was no preservative to preserve the RNA. Okay. Well, e- so, even if they were preserved, you're still doing a retrospective analysis then, which, yeah, has, exactly. which has its so, issues. Oh you, yeah, for you said sure. you said you know what we're going to make a long term play here. We're going to do a pros. We're going to build a sample bank of our own and do prospective analyses. Absolutely, and so we started. We built a forty nine site prospective validation cohort that was also used. Uh, it was split between the discovery cohort and then the blinded validation cohort. We ended up enrolling about five thousand patients into that study. Uh, We started with that unsupervised question of can we build machine learning classifiers that recognize the truth label on the patient sample, and then as we unveiled the validation, we showed that our test could perform with a very high degree of sensitivity and accuracy compared to that clinical uh, truth label that the patient would have gotten had they gone on to surgery and had their thyroid removed. So when we saw the early data coming out of that work, we were actually pretty enthused and excited that we could actually address the clinical problem of diagnostic ambiguity, which happens in every disease area. The the problem is enormous, even more enormous than we thought at the time. And that if this worked out in thyroid cancer, then that opened up our business to advancing the same clinical answers in lung cancer and other pulmonary diseases and to all the list of of indications that we haven't yet gotten to. Well, but so now this time you're uh, you're establishing a CLIA lab. You are marshalling the evidence that you think you need to make the case to the physician community and presumably the payers. But you didn't go, you didn't take this batch of data to the FDA. Is that right? Well, 
actually, we did in the early days have a number of discussions uh, with the FDA. Um, we, we worked with them on our clinical validation protocol. Uh, we used the voluntary program uh, to get insights. We visited them on several occasions. Uh, they were extremely helpful. Uh, but the issue at the time was that FDA was really uh, having their own set of ambiguity on how they were really going to move forward to regulate this space. They didn't have the resources. And, yeah, exactly. So when we found a Verisite, and I actually think this was one of the foundational things we did that was really, really smart, we actually put uh, in place at the time we founded the company a design control process that is, uh, you know, very FDA-ish and built our clinical validation protocols as if we would file with the FDA, because who knows, someday we may. I think um, when in 2010, when we were advancing the thyroid program through validation to market, there was um, a point in time where the guidance that FDA was wrangling with at that point in time was kind of put on the shelf, and they were bringing more attention to the direct-to-consumer companies. We felt it behooved us to go ahead and take the pathway of the laboratory-developed tests, knowing that, that we had a lot of the background documentation and things already in place if we would ever need it. Well, and by and this so, time, of course, I mean, you've taken some venture capital, and uh, I don't know, when did you take the company public? We took the company public in 2013. Okay, so you actually did get your validation and, and a couple of the key steps like Medicare reimbursement before that. Uh, we did, but 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 very very quickly, you had to start ma- selling, <laughs> generating some revenue, right. and making an mm-hmm. economic argument. Now, your initial mm-hmm. price, when I look back at, so this is when you and I first talked, and I wrote some about the company. I think you set your price at thirty five hundred. Yes. And at the time, I mean, you're you're looking to reduce some of the costs of the payers with you know make them pay that price. Uh, but knowing that you can, uh, some patients who are ordinarily going to go along and get their thyroids removed for surgery, cost maybe something like 12000 to 16000 a piece, and then take a whole bunch of thyroid med- uh, replacement medications the rest of your life, you can start doing the math then. Uh, if you can help people avoid that, well, maybe this thing nets out net positive at 3500 Is Is that the kind of yeah. analysis that you were you were doing? Absolutely. And I would say the economic analysis was so simple. Even though we published data on complicated Markov models, et cetera, you didn't need them. And when you fast forward that to where we are today in the thyroid uh, product line with our second generation test that we launched last year, for every three tests we're performing, we're saving two roughly $20,000 surgeries. So the economic benefit is so obvious and clear, but you're also saving patients the risk of surgery, lifelong hormone replacement treatment. It ended up, I think, being the poster child of why developing genomic tests that can change and improve the diagnosis of disease is so fundamental. And there was no test like this. I mean, you're, you're pretty much alone here with thyroid, right? That's correct. So you get your Medicare coverage from, uh, I think, in 2011, but that's not the end of the story. 
Can you talk about some of these, <laughs> these hoops that you had to keep going over and over and over? Yes, it's evidence, evidence, evidence. <laughs> um, I mean, at the end of the day, it you have to continue to build out the evidence after you validate the test. That's, you know, even though our validation study got published in New England Journal of Medicine, as it did for our lung cancer test as well, um, clinical utility and how well uh, the test works in the real world, are doctors changing clinical decisions? Then they publish their experience showing, yes, we did, and it was safe and effective, and everybody benefits from this test. That's what creates a standard of care. And usually guidelines get updated along the way. Unfortunately, though, it still took us about five years after that to get all of the commercial payers lined up. So it was not easy, but uh, in, in the first quarter of, of last year, 2018, we garnered our last uh, in-network contract with Anthem, which was a long time coming, and now have a firma covered by every major health plan, uh, both the commercial payers as well as Medicare, and it's available as an in-network um, test to, to all of those payers as well, which really uh, breaks the barriers down of physicians ordering. Well, let's just talk a little bit about the, the, the TikTok here. So you get Medicare 2011, uh, but only something like a fourth of your patient population, the thyroid um, patient population was in Medicare. But then did you have to go like region by region through Medicare? Or did you go from like the, the review board at Medicare up to like, big CMS administrator? Like, what, why is it taking five years to go from what appears to be CMS saying, yes, we'll pay your price, to all the commercial payers falling in line? Because I, I think a lot of people have a very simplified view that, well, once Medicare says yes to something, all the private payers fall in line pretty quickly. Yeah, I, and well, and, and as you know, uh, there's, there's uh, no precedent for that. The reality is, is that the commercial payers have no real incentive to say yes until your test becomes so demanded by patients and physicians that they they have to consider saying yes. Um, no healthcare medical director gets a gold star or a bonus for deciding to cover something, especially if it's a new area that is emerging growth. What if they get it wrong? If they get it wrong, you know, they'd be beat down. So it's constantly building up additional evidence and working with the payers to understand the compelling value you deliver, and it takes time. Um, the good news is, is though, once you get to the point where we have gotten with our first test, that landscape changes a bit. Because now that we are an in-network lab service provider, we actually have a contact and relationship with the payers so that with our Percepta lung cancer test and our third test in Visia for IPF, um, we, we have a different route to have those conversations. They know you. And so, yeah, they now <laughs> know us. I think we've, we've built some trusted brand equity. 
Uh, we have 25 or more published studies for Affirma. There has really been no data showing the, ta- the, the test is any less safe or effective than what we've always claimed. And so you sort of get permission to then have the conversations around your next test and the next test. And at the stage that we are today, that's a pretty exciting place to be. Well, when I looked at you, you've done an extension now on the Affirma. I'll just mention this real quick. You're, you call it an expression atlas. It looks like you have 761 DNA variants that you look at and 130 RNA fusions in over 500 genes. <laughs> That's a per, you're casting a pretty wide net. You're, you're gathering a lot of information from that little sample. Yeah, and uh, the reason that we can cast that kind of net is because the test is now running on an RNA whole transcriptome sequencing platform in the laboratory. And in fact, by the middle of 2019, all three of our tests will be whole transcriptome sequencing assays running in the lab. Now, our clinical classifiers that are making the diagnostic call use some subset of that content. Of course, it's the richest genomic content you can measure, so it gives it a lot more content than the content we had when we were on the arrays alone. But what is really exciting about that is it gives us the ability to think about what we're doing now in thyroid cancer in our other clinical indications, and that is running the sample in the lab on a whole transcriptome assay informing the diagnosis and when a patient is not benign and so they are likely more suspicious for malignancy, we can inform on the variants off of that whole transcriptome sequencing, whether it be DNA mutations or fusions or copy number changes that can directly uh, point to eligibility for potential targeted treatments at the same time of diagnosis with that same minimally invasive FNA sample. Yeah, So yeah. it's an incredibly powerful platform and strategy, we think. Now, we don't really have enough time to talk about the last two um, products, Percepta and Invisia. You, you have a nice little alliteration there, I guess. Affirma, Percepta, Invisia. <laughs> Whoever helps you <laughs> with your naming is doing pretty well, I think. But Percepta, <laughs> you're looking for lung cancer, early detection information, from a bronchial sweep, not a full-blown lung nodule biopsy. Again, which is a more invasive kind of test. You're probably not going to get that many samples. This is a, a bronchial sweep. This is something pretty easy that you can do um, early on before you have a, a real indicator of someone, whether they have cancer. And you can take it multiple times. Uh, yes. sa- same kind of thing with uh, Invisia, which is idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Isn't this, is that the same sample collection method? It is. Uh, both of those are collected during outpatient uh, bronchoscopy procedure. And, you know, for the lung cancer uh, classifier, we are basically taking every bronchoscopy that's done and help the physician get an answer because uh, up to 70% of those procedures don't yield a confident uh, diagnosis. And so very powerful ability to help stratify low-risk patients to CT follow-up instead of an invasive biopsy. And with Invisia, um, not only are surgical lung biopsies to get a pathology 
pattern of the UIP classic pattern that's needed for IPF, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, um, it, it not only is that a, a very risky, you know, high complication rate, most patients with IPF and other interstitial lung diseases are too lung compromised to undergo the procedure, so they may never get the test that can help elucidate the final diagnosis. So our Invisia classifier is really an exciting add to our portfolio in being able to a relatively minimally invasive sample that can inform a result that you would have otherwise needed to go to surgery to get. Very now, exciting. Now, in areas like this where we don't have good alternatives for mm-hmm. early detection of lung, non-small cell lung cancer, or idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Traditionally, we've gotten by with imaging, and by the time you can really see something that's clear on an image, um, it's mm-hmm. pretty pretty far along. So, oh, like at this early stage of the game, how good is good in term how <laughs> good for for the kind of confidence that you can provide the physician with that you're you're right. actually detecting cancer and not getting too wound up uh, stuck with false positives and false negatives. Well, you know, we always look at each clinical indication and uh, sort of define the performance parameters we need in order to build the confidence by the physician to make the clinical decision we're trying to change. And uh, with, with a with a cancer that you're ruling out, uh, like we're trying to do with lung cancer, we want to be able to change the percent of patients that are undergoing the invasive workup. So if we were to focus on finding people confidently that have cancer, we're actually just guiding them to go do what you would do anyway. You would work them up. So instead, we want to focus on having a test that's going to be highly sensitive so that we, when we rule out the cancer, we have a high degree of confidence that the patient can safely be followed without that invasive biopsy. So this is where you cut down on the waste. And Absolutely. The, and the unnecessary yes. pain and anxiety on the part of the patient. This is something Absolutely. I think that the payers can understand. Oh, you're going to help yes. us reduce waste because we waste yes, a lot of money a, in U.S. healthcare. That's right. Absolutely. And it's, I think, a little bit of our secret sauce. In the case of uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, though, it's kind of interesting because with Invisia, the performance that keeps patients from undergoing the surgery is actually to build, which we have done, a roll-in test. So here, the doctors want to have a high confidence that the patient does have the UIP pattern for IPF, so they don't have to go to surgery to confirm it. So each clinical indication has to be thought through very carefully. It's not always obvious. We do games in the company around playing these things out and how will each side of that coin drive the next decision a physician and patient makes. Um, it's really important to get that right. And I think that with the feedback and where we are with each of our tests today, I think we've actually done a really good job of getting that right. So last thing I want to ask, Bonnie, um, you're, um, you've made some progress. You've exceeded your uh, sales projections for Wall Street in 2018. This is a g- good sign. Some of those companies that I mentioned at the very beginning of the show, they've done the same. 
Um, has there been um, a, a core learning here among you and your peers in molecular diagnostics over the last few years um, around how to achieve product market fit? Yeah, I think that many in the industry have now coalesced around the belief that, A, uh, you have to answer clinical questions that matter, and when you answer them, you have to be able to have an impact. Uh, the other term for that is clinical utility. <laughs> you also have to build the evidence in the science so that you can get the published evidence that you do what you say your test should be able to do and build the confidence with physicians and patients to drive adoption. And I think all of us believe that with that level of evidence and with real clinical utility on the back of a clinical question that's being answered, uh, we can get the attention of payers with the new landscape we have around uh, a little, uh, I think, friendlier, both regulatory as well as legislative backdrop on CMS and pricing with PAMA coming into play. I think we all believe that, you know, doing our part in building tests that really will have an impact and proving that with the right evidence and continuing to work together to change the landscape elements that make it more friendly to our business is the way that we've got to go forward. Uh, and where I think everybody's pretty excited about the new wave success uh, in our space. Well, it's great to hear, Bonnie. Uh, as you know, the people at CMS and at the pairs, um, you know, they have a hard job to do. <laughs> we can't they just do. spend money on everything that comes along that sounds cool. Um, That's right. And... Um, yeah, we spend a lot of money on healthcare, and I think cutting down on the waste that um, with with good solid information that can give people peace of mind. I think that's something that just about everybody can get behind. Thank you very much, Bonnie, for joining me today on the long run. Thank you, Luke. It was nice talking with you. Thanks for listening to the long run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. Thanks to PPD Biotech for sponsoring, and thanks to you for listening. See you next episode.